I want to tell you about a senior who was a, a student at college. He had came to a point in his life, and he had decided at that point through his first three years in college, he had worked so hard, he had gotten all those tough classes behind, he wanted to kind of cruise through his senior year. And so he decided he's going to take some easy electives, and he looked through the catalog, and as he was looking through the catalog, he saw a course on ornithology. Anybody know what ornithology is? I had to look it up as well. It's a branch of zoology that studies birds. And so he thought, great. I was, as a kid, I liked looking at birds in my backyard. I, I think I know quite a bit about birds. This will be an easy course. And he had heard from others that it was pretty simple. He heard there was you know, no, no papers, no projects, no quizzes, no midterms, just a final exam. He thought, I can do that. And so he went through that course, made most of the classes. He skipped some, recognized that if he read the books, he'd be okay. And so he uh, is told us a few weeks before the professor announces the final exam is coming. And all I'm going to ask you to do, it's pretty simple. You just need to identify the bird um, of the different bird species as you go through that and name their characteristics. thought, okay, he could do that. And uh, so he got ready, studied, came to class that day, and they had these kind of lab tables, and he sat down at his place. He noticed that at each of the tables there was a bird cage with a cover on it, and just exposed at the bottom was the feet of the birds. And he looked around at each one, and the professor got up. He, he had brought his little blue book. Do you remember? I don't know if they do this anymore, but these little blue books that you'd take a test in, and you'd have to write it all out. And so he, uh, he obviously was a student a few years back compared to today. But he took this little blue book, and he sat down, and he heard the professor say, what I want you to do is look at the feet of the bird, identify the name of the bird, and then give me all the characteristics of it. Well, he took his little blue book. He went to about three different tables, was completely stumped, frustrated and angry, took his little blue book, walked up to the front where the teacher was sitting, threw it on the professor's desk, and began to walk out. And as he began to walk out, the teacher noticed on his little blue book that he didn't have his name. And he said, son, he said, son, um, come here a second. Um, What's your name? And so he came back to the professor's desk, walked up to him, lifted his jeans, exposed his feet, and said, you figure it out. I love that story because I've been the last three days asked questions about what God wants to do at Wyzetta and I feel like all I've seen is defeat and they're asking to figure it out and I can tell you this if God so chooses and I have the opportunity to be your lead pastor I really truly look forward to with you listening to the Spirit of God and figuring out what it means to do God's work here, how it takes shape, the characteristics, and all those things, so that this unique body in this place, in this time, for the period God would give us to to minister together, would do those things which would bring great glory to God. I don't know what that looks like, but I want to share with you this morning some of my thoughts of what that might look like. And before we do that, I'd ask if we could just bow our heads together and pray. Would we do that? Father, I just want to thank you for your presence here. I pray, God, if someone has come here and they didn't know what this Sunday was about, I pray that every person here would feel comfortable to know that even though they don't know all that's going on, uh, they might sense that uh, they're loved and, and that they're valued 
and that, God, you dearly, dearly want us to know you. So open our hearts, every person here, and open my mouth to be able to speak as clearly as possible your word in Christ's name. Amen. In Jim Canton's book, The Extreme Future, The Top Trends That Will Reshape the World in the Next 20 Years, he relates a story when he met in South Africa with all the white business leaders combined together with all the black South African uh, advisors to Mandela. And when he met with them, he had one question. He said, what do you envision to be the future of South Africa in 2020? He waited, and there were some sporadic, kind of of off-the-top-of-the-head kind of answers, but he could tell that there wasn't any real understanding of what they wanted to be. He was, it was just really evident to him that they didn't know what that would look like. And so he writes this. They had no future vision. And he made this comment. When there is no future vision, there is nothing to work toward creating. The lack of a goal to work toward will result in failure. This is the starting point for nations, for organizations like businesses and churches, and for individuals. What does it look like? What do I want to be? What do I want to become? You see, when you have a clear vision of the future that you're pointing toward and working toward and driving toward, then every action, every idea championed, and every plan that's proposed should be designed to get you there. And that is my hope and prayer as a church, that we have a sense of what that looks like. That as we um, look at more than just defeat, God begins to tell us the characteristics of what he wants this body to be. My desired future for Wyzetta EFC will be simply this. I'll say kind of in a line. To be a church that is kingdom-driven with people that are presence-filled. Capital P. Very simply, to be a church that is kingdom-driven with people that are presence-filled. Today, I would really like to talk about what are some of those characteristics and realities of what is a kingdom-driven church and explain why I say even kingdom-driven. And next week, some of you who are not away because of, uh, what is it that we have coming up next week with all the schools? MEA, that's right. For those of you who aren't away, you get the podcast. Um, I would like to talk about what do presence-filled people look like. This morning, as we envision what is kingdom-driven, what are a few of those what I call kingdom-driven realities? And I could name a number of them, but I'm just going to highlight about three that I think are very, very very important uh, in the sense of the characteristics of what we will be like as, uh, as a people. Over the past generation, there has been much talk about seeker-driven churches, believer-driven churches, experience-driven churches, and really all the rage lately has been, do anybody know, purpose-driven churches. But Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. And he was literally a kingdom-driven person, both in the community he desired to build and in the life that he lived. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is a kingdom-driven church? Well, first, a kingdom-driven church is all about grace. It's all about grace. It's about God's mercy and his kindness and his goodness and his love. Jesus came preaching that message and it was full of grace. He proclaimed the kingdom and he he simply said, 
as he kind of walked around and he talked with people, he said, guess what? Guess what, folks? Do you want to know what it means to come under the rule of God and what it means to live within his kingdom? He said, it simply means this, that God is here and he is available to anyone who wants him. What a great message, right? In fact, if you look in Mark chapter 1, there's a scripture, and it's one of the very first things it talks about with regard to Jesus' ministry. He says that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Well, what's the good news? He says the time has come. He said the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. Repent is not this word that, that says necessarily that we are to become all emotional and sad, although that may happen. Repent is really a word that means two things. Metanaeo, it means to think again, to rethink, to understand. And he was coming to a whole group of people and he wanted to say to this group of people who felt they had it figured out, who felt in many ways some of them were on the inside and there were a whole bunch of people on the outside having no access to God. And he came to these people and he said to the people, not on the inside, it's almost as if he didn't come to the church. He came to the people walking down the streets and he said, I got good news for you. I want you to think this all over again. I want you to use your mind and understand this very truth. And this is the truth. God's rule, his kingdom, his, his power and who he is is available to you. It's right here. It's as easy as, as giving someone a cell phone number and say, here's the number and make the call. Or if you walk into a hotel and you come to the concierge and you ask for a room, they go, it's just down the hall, just hit the elevator to the second floor. It's as easy as taking this the simple thing as you see someone and you call out their name and you call out their name and often when you call out their name, they hear it and they what? They turn. And Jesus was saying, here is God in, in flesh through Jesus saying, I want to share with you something about the Father who you feel so far away from, so apart from, so he seems so inaccessible to you, right? And he said, I want you to know this simple truth. God's available. That's what I want us to be about. Everywhere we go, anytime a person would come here, is they have this, this simple understanding of the kingdom of God that coming into a relationship with him and walking with him is as simple as saying, oh, here's the number. In fact, here, it's just down the hall. Or just calling out a name, God. And you say, God is available. Not on the basis of, of what you've done. Not on the basis of religious things you do. Not on the basis of legalistic things that you might be trying to follow through on. On the simple basis of the fact that your heart says, I want God. And you call out to him. You know, I think in some ways, we've really gotten it kind of backwards. We preach, believe, behave, and then you can belong. And, and Jesus came along, and he let people just gather around him, and they felt God's love. They felt a sense of belonging. People don't change so they begin to feel the sense that they're accepted, they're, they're at home with you. And so Jesus came along and he, he turned it around. He said, you belong first and you believe and then you become is how it all works out. And that really bothered some people who said, hey, wait, wait, wait a second. Who had in a sense had their act together and they said, no, it's believe. And if you just believe and then you'll start to become and then we'll let you belong. That's just not how it is in the kingdom of God. His disciples hung around and they just said, can we follow you? And he said, sure, you can belong. Peter was a guy who hung around a lot and he blew it a lot. 
took a long time for him to believe. How many times did Jesus say, boy, oh, oh, they, are they ever going to get it? He was Jewish, by the way. Anyway, <clears throat> Zacchaeus, he sees Zacchaeus sitting up in a tree. This guy who should be far away from God, he was on the outside. If anyone was on the outside, this guy wanted one thing. He had a need, and it was a need to be known. And this need to be known caused Jesus to yell out, because I think Jesus had heard about this guy, Zacchaeus, in the town, this scoundrel. And he says, Zacchaeus, guess what? Believe this, and if you become this, I'll have dinner at your house. Is that how it went? Uh-uh. He said, Zacchaeus, guess what? I'd like to have dinner at your house. And all the inn people are going, are you kidding? He doesn't belong. I have to tell you, one of the things that I'm so excited about seeing God create here is the sense that God allows for our hearts to allow people to feel love, not just in a building. It's not about here. It's about everywhere we go. We become these kind of people filled with grace, ruled by the kingdom of God. We become not some kind of seeker-driven, believer-driven, um, experience-driven, or purpose-driven church. We become a kingdom-driven church, which is right out of the word of God that says grace is important. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I believe that with my heart because you know what? The kingdom is for failures and flunk outs and messed up and screwed up people like me and like you who don't have their act together. I want you to take a moment and look at someone who's not your spouse because they know you too well, but turn around and just kind of look at someone, okay? It's a very, very difficult task. I'm asking you to do something very hard. Look at someone maybe you don't know. <clears throat> now, if you look at them, they look pretty together, don't they? Nice outfit, they're looking good, they get, you know, they're up dressed to the nines, and you're going, they got their act together, right? I want to tell you something, they don't. No one here does. And anyone who tries to be on this inside pretending you got your act together, you know what you do? You just make it really, really difficult for anyone who doesn't have their act together to think that they can know God. I want to tell you something, guess what? I'm going to be the first to tell you, I've blown a lot of things in my life. I don't have my act together fully. I am moving towards it. That's what I want in all my heart to become like Jesus, to have the character of Christ formed in me. And I want to go with a whole bunch of people who want the character of Christ formed in them, but they're not on the inside. They're really on the outside with everyone else saying, guess what? We need God when we need him bad. And the great news that we come with is that we are a community of grace that says you belong because at the bottom, the bottom shelf, we're all looking at each other. As best we try and look like we got it together, it is time we recognize the fact that we all are insecure. We have flaws, and we, but by the grace of God, need him so badly. And the people who feel on the outside, they know it. And so we need to know it, and it needs to be established. Because the kingdom is all about grace. It's also about unity. It's a call to unity. If you think of Jesus' last prayer in John 17, <clears throat> Jesus is praying before he's going to go to the cross. It's his, you know, think about it. When someone says their last words, or if you think of their last prayer, it's usually, it's usually not just the kind of a, a prayer off the you know, top of their head or, or it's some kind of whim, right? Usually it's pretty much at the core of what their heart is about. And Jesus' last prayer was at the core of his heart. And he prayed this simple prayer, which was another mark, a reality of the kingdom, and that is the church, his people, would be one. 
Because Jesus wanted his church to be mature. And maturity is about intimacy and unity and about relational oneness. That, that relational oneness, when there's real well-being, out of it flows this incredible, powerful well-doing. And Jesus knew how important this was. Jesus didn't die to save some, but to save all, that all might be one in him. John 17, verses 20 through 23 says this. I pray for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message, that all of them may be one. This is coming to the end of his prayer. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. That is the idea. May we be one, united, so that, here's the key, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know, here's the key, that you have sent me and have loved them even as you love me. They've experienced your grace. They felt loved. And as they felt that love, they've seen this sense of, of unity. This, this, not talking about unanimity. We're talking about people who are mature, who have the ability to disagree, who have the ability to um, be fully mature and to interact with one another in such a way that in it and above it and under it and all around it is this love that draws, draws us together for one task that the world might know that there is one who loves you deeply and dearly. You know, for too many centuries, the church has stood divided. I grew up as a good free church kid. My dad was a free church pastor. I grew up in, a, in an era and an age that I, that I thought the only ones who really could know God were free church people. Anybody not a, a free church person here growing up? You're lucky to be a free church person. Not, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in this age where, you know, it, there was so much rigidity around denominations and, and, and there was so much sense of, you know, if you're this or that, you can't really know God. And, you know, that's not reflective in the kingdom of God. And, and I remember growing up and processing and growing in this way and beginning to meet people who knew God who were of an other denomination. And I was just kind of amazed. I went, whoa. And then as I grew up more and became a pastor, I pastored a church and I pastored a church that I hoped would grow and, and develop and really reach out to other people and, and make a difference in people's lives and in the community. And then I began to realize that you know, here I was as a pastor and not only did I maybe get beyond that, but I began to realize that there was these boundaries that even churches that were on the same team we're competing for the same people, and they didn't do things together. And I, I started to question. I started thinking to myself, why is this? They fight over the same area for the same people, and they become territorial. That doesn't make sense in the kingdom. And so I began to start processing this a number of years ago. It's time to grow up. It's time that we joined efforts and our arms together to do good in the community we live with, no matter where they're at, as long as they know and they love Jesus and they're responding. And this person wants to do good, Jesus said, get alongside them and let's do it together. Let's make an impact for this kingdom. The work is too great to be done by one church. Why is that? I can't do it. It's too great to be done by a few mega churches. Every person who has at least some desire to want to do good and to know God and to love God and to walk in that way should get together and do what they can to make a difference in this community, in our school systems, in all the different places that we work. 
Well, how many of you have ever, I, I, I think of this when I think about this often. Uh, I have a brother who's two years older. His name's Keith. And I, uh, I remember when we were kids, we would go on these long road trips with my, my, my parents. And uh, my sister, for some reason, got to sit in the middle up in the front. My brother and I would be in the back seat. And, you know, after a little while, two boys, you know, two years apart, they just get a little, they start hitting each other, you know. And all of a sudden, someone does this, and, and they go, cut it out, Mom, Dad. You know, so now eventually what happens is Mom and Dad, Dad's arm, big arm, turns and comes to the back and says, draws this imaginary line down the back, right? He says, now, you stay on that side, and you stay on that side. And then, and then you got this little thing where you go, yeah, right? Anybody ever do that? Anybody have to have kids that do that? I mean, that's kind of fun as a kid. But anyway, drives parents nuts. But we had our territory, which we had to stay in. Now, it was just a few years back that my brother was um, 42 and I was 40, and we were going to a free church conference. I believe it was in St. Paul. I went out, both my brother and I were with my parents. We had dinner together, and my parents got in the car, and we got in the back seat. <laughs> you know it's coming. Wouldn't it be horrible if my parents, my dad, who's almost 70, had to turn around and say, boys, and draw an imaginary line? You would go, it's time to grow up. That's us. 2,000 years from the early church. That's the church today. There's a father in heaven that's kind of going, you know, drawing lines because... For some reason, over, over little things, I, I, and you know what? I'm not saying doctrine isn't important, but sometimes we're like monkeys in the trees fighting about little doctrines when if we could just get around the trunk of it where Jesus is the foundation and it is grace and his love, his faith that allows us to enter into a relationship with God. If we just got around that and just did good, just think of the impact. The unity of God's people would scare the hell out of Satan, out of this world. And I mean that, literally. The the fact of the unity of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God would come. Because whenever Jesus came in the fullness of his presence, what happened to Satan, the demonic in hell? It, It fled. And every time you see a revival of God, what happens when the revival of God comes? The Spirit of God comes in such a way that all of a sudden denominational stuff just goes by the wayside. Everyone comes together and sings Kumbaya. I don't know if they sing Kumbaya, but they, you know, they... They're together and God's presence is so rich and so full that things change because people not, don't start doing religious things. They start doing good and loving things to everyone around them and forgiveness and reconciliation and all this stuff flows. And I pray that the call of unity becomes a part of who we are. Because I believe it's time. Because I believe the Father in heaven is saying, grow up. Because a kingdom-driven church is one that calls for unity so that we can fulfill the dying prayer of our resurrected Lord who prayed before he went to the cross that we may be one so that the world would know that God had sent Jesus. There's a lot of different realities. I'm going to share with you one other reality that I believe is important. And I believe the kingdom-driven church is a demonstration of power. The church has become known for its talk. I believe the people of God has become known for its talk about what it wants to be and what it wants to do. In fact, most popular churches are known for what? They're known 
for the person in the pulpit rather than the people in the pews. I just think that's not right. One person's power of persuasion, this church is known, often the church is known as for one person's power of persuasion rather than the transforming power in the everyday life of the people who attend. And the power that God makes available through those people as they love and they pray for others. Paul challenged the Corinthians, and I think we need to remember this as well, that the kingdom of God is about demonstrating power. He writes in 1 Corinthians 2.4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. I didn't try to impress you. I, I did that in, in Athens just before that, and no one came to Christ. But with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith... You might trust, not in some person's words, but you would trust in the power that is available to you through God that made possible through Jesus Christ. And a chapter or so later, Paul has to emphasize this again, and he says, for the kingdom of God. And Paul was a kingdom-driven person. If you go through Acts and you get to the very end, what does it say? Paul went around speaking about the kingdom of God. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And it's what set Jesus apart. If you read Luke 4, verse 1, verse 14, right after he's baptized and and the the Spirit comes upon him, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And if you just follow the Gospel of Luke through, you'll see all these places where there's this demonstration of power coming through the life of Jesus. You go, well, that's the life of Jesus. Well, then all you have to do is follow the Luke as he goes through the acts of the Holy Spirit through the early church, which was really in many ways to be a pattern of how the acts of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is to follow through the church today. Jesus died, in, before he died, he gave to his disciples, he said, power. Jesus died and he gave his church power. Luke 24 says this, wait till you are clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.8 says, when power comes in, you'll be what? My witnesses. And I don't mean just to talk. My witnesses in, in the sense of that you will witness to the power of God that's available for your life. See, a kingdom-driven church demonstrates the transforming power of God. It's not about Sunday morning. It's not about good worship and good preaching. And I'm not saying that. It should have good worship and good preaching. But it's not primarily about that. It's about people who are filled with God and are being transformed, demonstrating his life-changing power, and bringing this life-changing power to people all around them. It's about one's personal character being transformed. It's about a person who, when they come to know God and begin to open their life to God, who maybe has a habit of anger or rage, Hopefully, 10 years from now, they are beginning to, those, those characteristics are beginning to be transformed so that this person is becoming a person of peace and gentleness. It's about a person who has learned through their life that gossip and triangulation creates a sense of false intimacy, so they keep doing that all through their life. But when the work of God and the power of God begins to develop in their character, they begin to realize that that gossip and triangulation doesn't really give them pure types of intimacy that they want, and they realize that that isn't right, and God, through their power, transforms them so that they become a person who speaks well and knows how to hold their tongue and is able to create true intimacy with people. It's about the person who is plagued with lust, and usually lust is about a desire for real intimacy, and that that, that 
that plague of, of that is then eventually transformed, that over time the power of God becomes available to your life so that as your life is changed, people around this community go, what's going on? And that's what the kingdom of God's about. It's about what he does in our character. It's about the loving attitudes he begins to create in us so we're not judgmental, stiff, inside people. It's about the power of God and what he can do in your marriage. What he can do for a husband and a wife who are willing to work at it. And let me tell you, marriage is work. Who are willing to seek to get help if they need to get help through therapy or whatever other ways, who come to the the pastors, who come to a small group of people and open up their lives. And as they open up their lives, they allow the work of God to begin to move and they begin to get in touch with the things that they are, are really causing the separation because the power of God through His Holy Spirit is made available through His church. It's about the power of God that's available to heal, to touch physical infirmities, emotional infirmities. Relational breaks. It's to touch those who have been demonized. And God's power in the kingdom is available today. In early August, about 2000, in early August, just this this last um, August, we had a banquet for the radio station that I was the executive director, or I still am, until maybe this afternoon. But anyway... um, I'm the executive director of. And one of the individuals who came was a, a person from South Korea who I had hired to come over from South Korea. And his name is Scott Key. And Scott came and his wife usually would come with him. And I said, and she was, I was planning for her and I'm thinking she'd be there. And I said, Scott, where's Sue? And he said, um, she, she's not going to be coming tonight. And he was kind of choked up. And I said, well, what's up? And he said, uh, she just heard that her niece in Korea, 11 years old, has a very aggressive cancer. And uh, she just couldn't come. I said, oh, that's fine. I talked to him a few times after that. And, and, and then it was just last week, a week before this last week, I, I, I talked to him. I said, Scott, how, how's Sue doing? How's your niece? And, and he said, oh, she's doing well. Uh, I, well, that wasn't kind of, I was looking for more than that. I sensed he wasn't telling me everything. And so I said, well, how's your niece? And I had to kind of draw it out of him. And he was hesitant to share, and I wasn't sure why. I found out later, he said, you know, in America, I don't know if people really believe in the power of prayer and then for the power, uh, the power of prayer, and then also for the power that shows up sometimes when God's people pray. Because they do that a lot in South Korea. And so he was real hesitant. I said, what haven't you shared with people? He goes, no. And he, I, he told me the story. I'm going to read it to you because I asked him to send it to me. Xiao, I can't even say it, S-E-O-H-Y-U-N. It sounds like Xian. I'll say Xian. He's a normal 11-year-old 8th grader, he writes. One day, Xiao Yun complained that she had chest pain. Not knowing the condition, her mother took her to a local medical clinic. After seeing her x-ray, the doctor at the clinic urged her, to take, urged her mother to take Xian to a general hospital. When the doctor called his friends at the hospital for an appointment. The next day, Xian and her mother went to the hospital without worries, didn't think anything was going to happen. But after a few days of testing, she was diagnosed with a rare case of lymphoma. These cancerous cells, uh, this tumor, were found between her heart and lung, the size of about 10 centimeters. It had already spread throughout her body. It pressed against her chest and made it difficult for her to breathe. 
With disbelief, her parents began seeking a second opinion from a major reputable hospital in South Korea. With the same diagnosis from each hospital, she was then transferred to the top cancer center in the country. And everyone, the result was the same. Her condition deteriorated every day, and she was put through different treatments, hoping to slow the cancer's growth. Tian was scared, and her parents prepared for the worst. The doctors told her that there was a great chance the cancer could put such severe pressure on her lung that it would cause her lung to fail, and she would die in her sleep. Her mother would sit up by her bedside at night, watching to see that she would breathe. A few days later, her chemotherapy started, and her bone marrow was extracted. The pain was so unbearable for her, she cried out, Lord, if you are real, why are you giving me this enormous pain? Please make it go away. This is an 11-year-old eighth grader. She almost experienced death when she went through that that, uh, extraction of bone marrow a second time. And when it was over, not too long after it was over, she said to her mother, Mom, please take me to my hospital room. God told me that he has something to tell me. Take me now. Well, her mom thought initially the trauma and pain had caused her to lose her senses, but she went ahead anyway because the urgency of her daughter's voice and took her to the room. For the next 90 minutes, Sion experienced something extraordinary. He writes, supernatural. From the moment she set her foot into her room, she first said, Mother, I see a light in the sky. Her mom soon realized perhaps that Sion was seeing God. She started recording her daughter on her cell phone. Well, cell phones are good for something. Anyway, Sion explained that there was a strong light shining upon her and how it lifted and carried her toward the light. And after a few moments later, she shouted, Wow, I think it must be Jesus. She repeated, Mother, Jesus is so beautiful. He's so handsome. And then she told her mother that Jesus was taking her somewhere. And she cried out, Mother, he tells me that this is our home. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Mother, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Really, I'm so happy. Her mother realized by listening to her daughter that Sion was probably seeing heaven. Jesus explained to Sion about the things that will happen to her and her family. And he also told her that he would use her. And when she asked Jesus how he could use her when she was severely ill, Jesus replied that she was cured and could go home. After the incident, Sion took the x-ray again, but this time the cancer wasn't visible. It was gone. With amazement, doctors suggested that Sion needs a bone marrow extraction. They just didn't believe it. The news so devastated Sion, she remembered how painful the first one was. She cried and asked God for help. God, do I have to go through this again? It hurts so much and I'm so scared. Please help me. And on the day of the bone marrow extraction, Sion experienced God's miracle once again. She did not feel the pain. She went through it, but this time she didn't feel the pain. Jesus again talked to her. He said, don't forget to say thank you to your doctors and also to your mom. I mean, Jesus is such a gentleman. (laughs) Everyone will be amazed by what happened to you. Initially, every doctor told her parents that there is nothing they could do to save her. The cancer had already spread throughout her body. Sion hung. Sion is home now, and she regularly makes hospital checkups, but they are finding nothing. And I don't think they will. And what amazed me was, here is a person who works with them. I said, how many people have you told this story to? He said, oh, I haven't really told anybody. I said, well, I want it because I want to tell a whole lot of people about that. I want people to know that the power of God is real. And I think the only reason he was hesitant is because of such disbelief that we have in this power of God. So whenever I get a chance, and there's a person ill, like when I, that's, 
I think the people down at Trinity knew that I was ready to go back into ministry because I would pray and anoint people with oil for healing all the time. And, and, and not whether, it was up to God whether he heals, but I know my job is to do this, is to, if, if we don't ask, we won't receive. But I do know his job is to decide when he wants to do it. And I believe the kingdom of God is marked by grace, it is marked by a call by unity, and it's more than just talk. It's about God demonstrating his power in our lives. And I'm excited to at least see those three things become evident in this place, in this community, in my life and your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your love, your kindness, and for what you're doing in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.